This is the Voices in Health Law podcast, brought to you by the American Bar Association Health Law Section. And I'm your host, Jeff Warsberg, with Lock Lord, based in San Antonio, Texas, and with the Austin and Washington, D.C. offices. I'm also a section leader and co-chair of the Washington Health Law Summit. Today, I will be discussing the surprise billing final rule with Brian Hoyt, Managing Director of Berkeley Research Group based in Washington, D.C. But before we begin, an important disclosure. None of these views or comments expressed in, these, in this podcast represent the position of the American Bar Association, any section division, or form their own, nor do they constitute any expression or any position of my law firm or the issues discussed by today's speakers. Uh, and with that, let's go ahead and jump into it. Uh, so today I'm speaking with someone I have tremendous respect and admiration for, Brian Hoyt, who's a managing director with Berkeley Research Group in Washington, D.C., Brian is with BRG's health analytics practice and is an expert in network adequacy and health plan provider directories. He has been selected as an independent monitor of enforcement decrees pursuant to both state and federal investigations in these areas. He also routinely works with health plans to proactively navigate the risks and complexities that these areas present, as well as to respond in the event of disputes and investigations. Brian's expertise extends not only to the data and technology used in these areas, but also to the state and federal regulatory landscape in which plans operate. And so today we're going to dive into the No Surprises Act uh, and discuss really some game-changing legislation that both payers and providers are fervently attempting to implement. The No Surprises Act was part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, which was signed into law by President Trump late last December. Uh, Critically, it's, it's intended to protect individuals from surprise medical bills, Uh, And it goes into effect January 1st, 2022. So we're now less than 60 days away uh, from that. And since July, we've had two interim final rules, a proposed rule, uh, and some guidance implementing the No Surprises Act. And and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, So I'll also note, uh, if you're interested in the nuts and bolts of the No Surprises Act, we're going to have a great presentation uh, at the Washington Health Law Summit. Uh, So a quick plug for that. Um, but Brian, let's let's get into what this really means. Uh, talk about a, a circumstance you're familiar with, and, and then we'll talk about how it would change. Thanks, thanks very much, Jeff, uh, for inviting me to uh, to the podcast today. I'm really excited to talk about this important issue. No surprises, Act, as you noted, uh, is is very impactful legislation that was a long time coming, um, and, and uh, you know, really excited to, to talk about the topic here today. So, I thought it would be instructive. Uh, for, for the purposes of this discussion today to use a real world example where I actually received out of network services um, and received uh, you know, a balance bill and you know, it kind of went through the whole negotiation process to pay that bill. Um, so what, what happened in a nutshell was uh, I had uh, an incident on my mountain bike where uh, I got a puncture wound on my leg and, and uh, needed to go in to have uh, an orthopedic surgeon take a look at it. Um, to kind of extract whatever was, was still on my leg after the accident. So uh, when I went into the, to receive the services, I was well aware that he was out of network. He'd come highly recommended from friends of ours. So I was aware that he was out of network, but you know, I, I still nonetheless decided to, to go forward with, uh, with you know, receiving my healthcare services from him. So I went in, you know, received the healthcare services. I made my, or I, I made my appointment uh, more than three days in advance. Um, I, I, like I said, I was aware that he was out of network, although at that time there was no requirement for a consent to be signed uh, that I was aware of that, but uh, I received my healthcare services. 
the provider submitted the claim for those services, um, even though that was after much urging from me, like I was, they, they kept saying that they were out of network and they said that typically in that scenario that the patient then would submit the claim or you know, the claim form to the insurer. But I said, well, I have an out of network benefit here, so you should actually submit the claims and they did. Um, and then a few weeks later, I received the bill or a few months later, I received the, the actual bill. And you know, anytime I receive a medical bill, you know, I'll look it up on my insurance, I'll, I'll look at the EOB and I can see kind of what's going on. So in this case, you know, I could actually see you know, there was an out-of-network allowed amount, which my insurer said they use Data Eyesight, a third-party software, to identify the allowed amount for out-of-network benefits. I could see that that the insurance company had paid based on my out-of-network benefit of seventy percent, so my cost share was was thirty percent in that case. And then I could see that there was a non-payable amount that the insurance company wasn't going to pay, and that that was essentially the, the difference between. Uh, the out-of-network allowed amount and the bill charge, right? So the provider was still billing me for that bill charge. So I got the bill. Uh, I said, uh, you know, I called up the provider and I said, uh, uh, you know, we, we then underwent a negotiation process to, you know, to actually pay um, what what ultimately ended up being the correct amount. So, um I think that this this is a good example of you know it kind of gives you the whole flow of, of you know the process that you would go through to when you receive an out of network claim and then and then pay it. And, and so I, I think this is a really great context because now let's let's shift this and let's switch up the facts. And so now you know we're two months from now. No surprises act is in effect. Yep. Let's say that that it's an emergency, right? You're going to an out of network provider. Uh, and, and just for context, because I want the listener to appreciate. So you are, you're, you're on your bike. You are in full biker cyclist regalia that, that includes helmet, tight shorts, you know, the, the tight shorts. You're, you're riding. Yeah. You have this, this accident. Yeah, and that, now you that, go. That's referred to the biker's kit, mind you. Yeah. So tight that shows how unsophisticated I am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Gotcha. So, so now you go and, and what changes? Well, so th- there's some there's some important changes uh, that at the very at the very first step, right? When I schedule a visit, the provider under the No Surprises Act is now supposed to ask, which they did do, right? I mean, they asked me about insurance, um, but they ask if you know, do you have insurance uh, or not? You know, or if you do have insurance, um, do you want to not use your insurance and do self-pay, right? So depending on the answer to those, if if there is a, if I say, yes, I have insurance, then the provider is going to send the expected charges for my visit uh, to the insurance company that will, that will then allow the uh, insurance company to prepare an advanced EOB, right? So this is something very new. We're all used to the EOB kind of, you know, being a retrospective view of, you know, whenever we receive healthcare services, this kind of turns it on, on its head and says, this is something that uh, is going to be pre- prepared in advance, right? To allow me, you know, for my for my healthcare services or my my visit, I can actually see what the expected charges are, right? Also, importantly, if I don't have insurance or if I choose to do self-pay, there's also a requirement for the provider to prepare a good faith estimate, right? And the good faith estimate is similar to the advanced EOB. It's supposed to be 
on a single disclosure, all of those healthcare services that I would reasonably be expected to receive as part of that visit, right? So if, if you know, if we say that this is the, in the emergency context or, you know, say I'm, I'm uh, at an inpatient facility, um, but they, as part of my, my course of treatment, uh, they expect to have other ancillary providers providing services, you know, for my healthcare visit, say anesthesiology or radiologists or pathologists, so, so what have you, They're, they are supposed to collect all of those services onto a single disclosure and make it part of this good faith estimate and provide that to the patient. And, and I think it's worth pausing there just for a hot second. I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on the challenges with the good faith estimate, but you know, for providers gearing up for this to get systems ready to appreciate what needs to be provided in, in the, in the uh, related amount. I mean, this is a real challenge. Uh, obviously, there's there's going to be a delay in the September uh, IFR. HHS said, look, we're not going to, with regard to health plan amounts, the good faith estimate providers, we're going to give you a period here. We, we appreciate the technological logical changes here that are required. Um, so, enforcement discretion for a while on, on that. But, but obviously when you're planning your systems, that, that has to, you can't really wait. I mean, you're, you're setting up the systems now uh, and, and that's gonna be a real challenge. The, the other thing I wanna yeah. note too is uh, what is an emergency and there's a prudent lay person standard and, and that's important. Plans can no longer require prior authorization for emergency services. They can no longer determine uh, emergency services based on a CPT code. So they wouldn't be able to look at what happened to you and say, oh, a bike accident, that's not, you know, you should have sucked it up and waited until, you know, the office opened on Monday or gone to urgent care, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to note the, you know, requirement or the kind of the technological requirements or just kind of the infrastructure that's required here, because, you know, I made my appointment in advance. I made it, you know, three or more days in advance, but it was less than 10 days. So within that window of time, they have, the, the provider has one business day to provide that good faith estimate, right? So if, you know, mine was relatively straightforward. There was one provider rendering the services. However, if you have a more complex case and you've got all these different, you know, providers that are providing services to you, they've, they've used this term called the convening provider, right? And the convening provider is the, the, the point person that is supposed to for this course of treatment, you know, figure out what the other providers are going to be that, that are going to provide those services. So let, let's talk about now, let's, uh, where there would be a question as you, so you would be protected as the consumer, you would not be responsible for anything more than, than your in-network cost-sharing amount. Uh, how do you determine that? The, the, the process where the insurer is going to make an initial payment is, is, um, you know, they, they're still going to make that initial payment, right? When I looked at my EOB, I could see that uh, the insurer had made, you know, a payment based on my out-of-network benefit, right? So the difference here is that the provider, the, the payer still has to make that payment and they have, they have 30 days upon receiving a clean claim from the provider to make that payment. But there's really no, there's really no guidance as to what the, the amount or how the payer is supposed to calculate that initial payment. Right. It's supposed to be considered not an installment payment, but it's supposed to be something that the payer would consider to be a final payment. But I think the, the agency is, is asking for note, you know, for comment on how the payer should go about calculating that. So, and it's important to note, this is a big change also. 
that the payer has to make this initial payment, even if the pay, even if the patient has not satisfied his or her doctor. That is a major change. And, and so, you know, I think it's one of the major concepts we need to cover here is uh, the qualifying payment amount. Brian, can you yes. talk a little bit about what, what that is, how this is going to yeah. work, what the challenges are, and especially, you know, I know you're doing with clients on a daily basis, advising them on this. What are you telling them to do? I mean, this, these are challenging concepts to implement very quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the qualifying payment amount. So, so it, to, to answer your earlier question related to determining what the in-network or what the actual payment should be, right? There's, because the difference here is that the patient is supposed to, if they receive out-of-network services and they receive a surprise bill, they're supposed to be no worse off than had they received in-network services. Right. So what that means is that not only do I presumably have a lower kind of in or a lower allowed amount to begin with. Right. What what the reg calls uh, a recognized amount in this case. Right. So presumably that's going to be a lower amount than the out of network allowed amount anyways. But I also have a higher in my in my insurance plan. I actually have a richer benefit for in network benefits. Right. So. The difference here is I have 70% on out-of-network and 90% on in-network, right? So to the extent that the allowed amount or what they're calling the recognized amount now, and I'll get to the QPA question, you know, that's going to be a lower amount, but then I've got a richer benefit on that. So that means that, you know, that I'm that much more well off as for having, you know, been treated as an in-network service, right? So this, this recognized amount, as you mentioned, is determined in a couple of different ways could be based on specified state law. As, as we all know, Jeff, you know, there's several states that have addressed balance billing and, and surprise bills you know, already. Um, so, and, and HHS makes it clear that, that this is not, the No Surprises Act is not intended to supplant those. I mean, they're really kind of looking to the states to you know, continue with those laws. Um, but then also the QPA or the, you know, the lesser of the QPA or the bill chart. So your question about the QPA is an important one because the QPA essentially is a calculation that the plan has to make based on different criteria, right? And those criteria are essentially, it's a calculation that they do where they take all of their contracted amounts for a particular service. And, and those contracts, those contracted amounts essentially are if you have, say you're a health insurance company and you have you know, provider agreements with, with 10 different providers, right? For a certain service, uh, for a certain CPT code or HC, you know, HICPIC code. Um, each of those different contracts represent a contracted amount, right? And to identify what the QPA is, you as the payer would align those, you know, either ascending or descending order, it doesn't really matter, then you would find the middle, what they call the median, right? So if you have, you know, in our example, we have 10. Um, since it's an even number, you essentially take the average of the two middle numbers. If we had 11, then you would take the, the actual middle number. So it sounds simple enough, right? But th there's, a lot of, there's a lot of caveats there in terms of, you know, what, what you need to consider when calculating those or when looking at those, those contract rates. You have to figure out, consider what the insurance market is, you have to do it based on geographic region. And in this, in this case, they're actually using MSAs as the, as the geographic regions. So if you have a state like North Carolina, for example, they have 
16 or 17 MSAs. And then the rest of the state is going to be, you know, the, the non-MSA region, mm-hmm. right? So if you have different contracts in each of those different MSAs, you conceivably have to calculate a different QPA for each of those different geographic regions. And then again, if you multiply that by the number of, you know, contract, contracts that you have, or if you have certain carve-outs or what have you with, you know, certain providers or specialties, you can then start to think the multiplier gets bigger and bigger. So you're having to calculate Conceivably, a plan could be calculating hundreds of QPAs for an individual service. And it, I think that really speaks to the, the burden that it is on everyone in trying to implement this. So in our scenario, you've now gone home. You're still wearing your, your kit. Uh, you've, you've gone home. You've been treated. Uh, so as you mentioned, there's, there's 30 days to make that initial payment uh, based on the claim. You're, you're now out of this as the patient, right? what happens behind the scenes if there's a, a problem? Because it's kind of fast and furious. And so I'm curious how you've been advising clients on the best way to handle that. Can you say that in a different, say it a different way? Sure. So with regard to uh, once the patient is out of the calculation, but there's a dispute yeah. now on what is actually being paid by the plan to the provider, what, what's going to happen behind the scenes, which interestingly enough, the consumer will never, the patient will never know about. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so then what, what ensues is the uh, independent dispute resolution process. And this, this is a, a process that, you know, involves back and forth between the stakeholders, right? In this case, between the payer and the provider. Um, that process is kicked off essentially once the plan makes the uh, initial payment amount to the provider. And that, that's, that, that's essentially when they open, when they call what, the, what they call the open negotiation period where at any point during that, that period, you know, one party or another can uh, offer to, you know, make a settlement or, you know, if, if there's, if there's uh, some disagreement as, as to what that rate is, they can reach a resolution during that 30-day period, right? But, but the, uh, the preamble to, to, the, to the IFR was clear in saying that, you know, the, the intent of this initial payment is really to head off those dispute resolutions between the payer and provider at the outset, right? Um, to really not allow those disagreements to, to even continue, you know, to, to happen. I mean, th- there is a process for it, but I think that's kind of the intent. So, so when you say, all right, we as the payer or the payer makes a initial payment and uh, if the provider accepts that, then that becomes, it's important to note, you know, that becomes the out-of-network amount, like the agreed upon out-of-network amount. If they don't accept it, you know, then there's this process, which is, you know, it's a, as I said, it's a lot of back and forth between the parties. And ultimately, the dispute, if it goes the full way, then it, you know, there's an there's a independent review, independent reviewer that, that actually uh, will review you know, the offers from both sides, and then they'll reach an agreement. And this is where the QPA factors in prominently also, because that reviewer needs to consider the QPA as part of his or her rendering. Yeah, and, and I think what was, uh, you know, providers were uh, not happy with the, the final rule, uh, and apologies, that was my dog Scout barking. Apparently, she sides on the provider side of it. She is also not happy that the, the QPA is going to be the presumption for, for the IDR entity. I mean, they can look at other things, and uh, the parties will have 
10 days to submit to the IDR entity why the amount should be different. And, and that's going to be a real, real challenge. And now we'll take a moment to recognize our Health Law Section sponsors. The Health Law Section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA, four-star premier sponsors, BRG and VMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors, Alex Partners and Pinnacle Health. Now back to the program. Curious, you know, your, your thoughts when you're advising entities, what, what do they do? What, what, how do they make that case to get away from the, the QPA? Well, I think that the, um, I think, you know, in, in my experience with, with the, uh, with the plans, I mean, thus far, there's, there's enough open questions in, in the guidance that's been received as to how to calculate a QPA. So I think the QPA is, I think there's, there's more to be done there in terms of how we, how it's understood and, and how it's actually calculated, right? I mean, I think the, in the preamble to the, um, you know, to the IFR, the part one IFR, you know, they estimated that it would be, that plans and would spend something like $5 billion instituting the infrastructure to calculate the QBA. So it's yeah, a big yeah. deal. It again just shows the the complexity, and and so you know I think there's two two more questions uh, I want you to address while while we have you, and this goes to the complexity, right? So there is the the trifecta of issues uh, that that health plans are are dealing with right now. So you have NSA, you have price transparency requirements soon going into effect, and then yep. you have interoperability. How do these work together and where, where does this leave us, right? I mean, the idea is that, oh, well, you're going to have more educated consumers that can make determinations based on price for care. Is that really what's going to happen or is this just going to confuse individuals more? I, I think it's, I think there's going to be a time where it's certainly going to confuse things more. I think with the guidance that we saw coming out for, for the No Surprises Act, I think they kind of recognize that there's a lot of overlap between the No Surprises Act and especially the transparency and coverage. Mm -hmm. They also recognize that, that there are, if you start to think about the interaction between payers and providers, and this, this extends to, to provider directories as well, right? Because the, the interoperability standards, you know, allowed for the, the uh, provider API and the uh, patient access API, which that essentially is exchange of information between the payer and the provider, right? So to the extent that the No Surprises Act or the transparency and coverage uh, allows for or, or requires this interaction between payer and provider, I think they kind of recognize that, hey, you know, we need some time to get the infrastructure set up here, right? To, to you know, before we start enforcing, you know, being real strict on the enforcement and I think that that certainly comes into play when you have things like, you know, where a, a payer has to make available their, you know, an enrollee or a patient's health insurance benefits, or if a provider is seeking prior authorization, like all those things are, are addressed in the patient or in the interoperability standards that, you know, those have timelines that are further out in the future than uh, the No Surprises Act. So I think what, what we see in, in, in this case with No Surprises Act is that, you know, there's got to be some time where you kind of figure it, you know, let those things kind of get in operationalized and then 
you know, catch up on the enforcement and somewhere, somewhere down the road. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think that that's actually right. perfect segue. Emergency uh, services being provided out there. I hear the siren. Yeah, well, my immediate reaction, <laughs> exactly. Um, so let, let me let me end with this question, and, and this goes to something near and dear to, to both of our hearts, is provider directories. So yep. there are some significant changes uh, required by the No Surprises Act. Uh, HHS has has punted on this. Uh, understandably, there's, there's enough everyone's trying to implement uh, in the near term, but what does this mean? Uh, when do we expect those changes to be implemented and bringing it full circle? Uh, how would this have affected you potentially uh, in your scenario? It's interesting, you know, there are, like you say, there, there are some pretty extensive changes to provider, the requirements around provider directories. Some of, some of which, if you look at the component parts in terms of, you know, the, the effort to verify the providers in your provider network, you know, that was an existing requirement in, in virtually all, you know, CMS regulated health plans. Um, but the, the, the frequency at which you would do it is, it, you know, that was what was missing, you know, convening around some standard on that, on how frequently you would do that. So Medicare Advantage already, already required 90 days, and that's kind of what they landed on here. Um, but I think they kind of went a step further to say, all right, you have to, you can't just, you know, verify, right? You have to come up with a process by which you receive, you know, you interact with the provider to verify your network. But then also you, you need to have a, uh, a response protocol in place where if somebody encounters a out of, you know, somebody goes to the directory and they see a provider and it turns out to be out of network, there's got to be some way to, to filter that through, you know, that response, uh, you, know, system, you know, operationalize that response so that the, so the plan can actually update its provider directory. And then, you know, upon learning of, of, uh, of a change, you know, again, we had seen requirements in the past, but, but they, they uh, in this case, they've, they've cut that time to update your provider directory once you learn, once you as a plan learn from a provider you know, a change in that provider's record, you have two days, two business days to update, update that information. And just based on, you know, the work that I've done with plans on directories, that's not easy. Like that's not, that's not an easy, and if you, I mean, just that one piece, that's a hard thing to do. So if you, if you put that in the, you know, across in the, in the breadth of these, of these new requirements, you know, you start to think about, this is requiring plans to build an infrastructure around this process to comply. And, and you know, again, going to the underlying idea of the statute and taking the, the consumer, the patient, the individual uh, out of, of the out of the harm, right, where they're unaware no. of this. What what happens in that scenario? So, what if you had relied on a provider directory? It turned out it had not been updated. Uh, in a timely fashion, you relied on that and got care from someone who was out of network. What, what would happen? Yeah, so they, you know, it said they're supposed to be in that case. They're supposed to be treated like an in-network. Uh, you know, if you received services and you were treated as an out-of-network uh, service uh, and billed as such, you know, and you you say, and this is where the response protocol comes in, and you say, no, I relied on your directory. The, the provider is in the directory as par. You know, they say that that you're supposed to. Be treated as an in-network provider. And what's interesting is if you received services from and, and the provider charged you 
cost share wise at, as an out of network patient, right? So say you have a higher cost share, as we said before, uh, it's out of network. So, you know, I submit my 30% as, as co-insurance, um, but if it turns out that I really should have only paid that 10%, that comes out of the provider's pocket. If they collected too much at point of, at point of service, that comes out of the provider's pocket and comes back to me as the patient. So one, one final lightning round question. Uh, let's change the scenario a little bit. You, you have your accident. Uh, a ground ambulance comes to pick you up. Does this law protect you from any out-of-network billing there? It, to my knowledge, it, it does not. Um, and, and, you know, my review of some of the state balance billing laws, you know, state laws don't, don't either. And I think it's curious. You know, ground, ground transport, that's expensive. I mean, I have an out-of-network story for ground transport, too, where, uh, you know, I ran a marathon and I had heat exhaustion at the end and I had to be rushed to the hospital, you know, in an ambulance and got to the hospital and, you know, I got in, you know, I, I can't remember if I was admitted or, or if I just went to the ER, but I got there and hospital was out of network too, mind you. So they gave me two cans of Gatorade and said, you're good. Yeah. Then you get the bill and you're, you know, I think it was a $2,000 ambulance ride in Jacksonville, Florida. And then, you know, then I get the facility charge for the, you know, the stay at the hospital. And, you know, it's just, it was a ridiculously expensive marathon at the end of the day, but yeah. <laughs> Back to your question, ground transport, not addressed. Curious thing, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on, on why that might be. Uh, yeah, you know, the only thing that comes to mind is just kind of the politics of the day. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, these EMT services uh, were not eligible for some of the coronavirus relief funds. And, and I think there might've been political pressure there that led to their exclusion. It, it does require an advisory council to be formed and examine the issue, but. Uh, you know, there are, are plenty of statistics um, with regard to ground ambulance and uh, how often that is out of network. Uh, and I think it might be, you know, over 50% of the time. So, I mean, it's, it's significant. Uh, well, I feel it's like interesting it's, that, that air transport is covered. Like that's, that's yeah. prominent. Yeah, a absolutely. Air ambulance. And, and again, obviously a big, big issue for a long time, but uh, less frequent certainly than, than ground ambulance. So, Yep. Yep. An interesting, outstanding uh, question. And, and advisory committees, as we know, are usually very rapid in their uh, suggestions and then Congress taking them up and implementing them. So I'm sure we'll record that podcast in no time. Right. <laughs> well, listen, so. yeah. Well, Brian, uh, thank you so, so much. Uh, you're always just a, such a tremendous resource on, on these issues. Uh, Brian Hoyt, Managing Director with Berkeley Research Group. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks very much, Jeff.